City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, acres and acres of tyrants are met again, and uh, here we are, City Limits, that's the second Wednesday of the month, it's also our second last program, I'm starting to regret the fact we're going an extra week, I <laughs> should have stopped today, but anyway. What were you thinking? I don't know, well, I thought we wanted to get another, another housing session in, that's what. I think we'll we be glad have. once we have the housing Yes, okay, here. today's energy, we are coming on next week, but then we're off to the first Wednesday in February, and that's, that makes us feel Woo-hoo. better, doesn't it? That's right. Let's go to the beach. (laughs) Off to a bad start today, though, because riding across here, I went a couple of spots. I heard these magpies caroling, and then I rode to Edinburgh Gardens with all the rows of jacarandas, and I thought, oh, what a bad start today. This has turned out to be. Oh, no, because you're in such a good mood again. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, (laughs) but we'll cheer them up because we're doing uh, energy and we're doing. Waterways, and we're going to talk to Helen Vandenberg. Um, we're going to, in fact, we've got two of our regular irregulars or irregular regulars, depending how you call them. Uh, today, just to wind up the year, we've got Helen Vandenberg, great community activist, of course, and she's this year she's done a lot of work, particularly in well, the culmination, not the culmination of, but after years of work, the government set up a committee to look at the uh, waterways of the West, which is really good, and of course, it coincided with the mm. dreadful thing on Stony Creek we have talked about a lot mm. and we've also got Dr Pat or Professor Patty Moriarty um, coming on today just to talk about some of the aspects of transport and energy etc that he's been researching and we can look at so wonderful we'll have a go at those I want to talk to him about lithium actually because uh, lithium's used in batteries and Australia has has a large percentage of the world's lithium we mine it in Western Australia we send it for processing to China and then it goes to Japan and Korea to end up as batteries turning up in things, and you keep thinking, well, if if it's saving energy, and there's a lot of energy used um, just moving it around. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's so interesting. I didn't know that we had so much. Yeah, Western mm. Australia mainly. but mm. we, yeah, And also uh, on that, there are, there are people saying, in fact, of course, but not saying it from, a, from an environment point of view, but saying economically, we could make a lot more out of it if we if we did the whole process ourselves mm. because we're not getting as we're getting a small percentage of the total because those places we send it to are getting yep. the, all that mm. sort of stuff here. Yeah. Value added. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, there we go. Uh, so this morning, what are we talking about? Well, I want to I want to open up and I want to open up on this note. The the Herald Sun. Uh, we'll, we'll start with the Herald Sun as usual. <laughs> Jacarandas, magpies, and the Herald Sun. Just read the papers here because everything got out of order as it fell out of my bag. But um, the front page of the Herald Sun on Monday said everyone needs a jasmine in their life. Front page story. Oh, no. And some television bloke got married to a woman called Jasmine, but he so loves her that everyone needs a Jasmine in their life now. And it's got this beautiful photo of her and this frilly right, white thing right. that makes her look like a little yeah, Jasmine no. flower. Uh, I don't know if you're going to reveal your 
uh, you're as um, culturally naive and as culturally um, ignorant as I am, but I've never actually seen the bloke on telly, but I know he's on telly because you can't help but notice because these pages, you see. Mm. Um, well, show, show me the photo and let me have a look. Well, and he's some sort of television personality because he is on commercial television. We all have to know him and love him and care for his life. The only problem with that story was, by the way, the next day, yesterday, they had a, they had a story from his wife, who's a, his first wife, who's mm. roughly his age, um, <laughs> not as young as Jasmine, um, saying what a bastard he is. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that aside. It's not defamation because we didn't say no, it. You're right, just repeating right, the that's news. Right, that's yeah. right. But, but everyone needs, I thought, well, everyone needs a Jasmine in their life. The nearest we can come is this morning I've decided to have Jasmine tea. So wow. that's, uh, nice that's segue. a segue yeah. to have pour some tea. Here we go. Um and the the next one, I, I yeah, the, well, I'll just put it on the papers. I wanted to read. Do you want me to pour the tea, is, Kevin? Wait, that's a good Let's idea. Let's do that. Wow, I can pour oh. the tea while you read the news. Chain, oh, but, that's a nice put it, change. Put it near your mic. Yeah. People like people. Division of labour. It's the yeah. end of the year. Try it something is. new. That kettle is hot. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> I think I can. I think I can manage with this. Yeah, but you, oh, you didn't pick up the handle. Um, so, uh, yes. So that was that, and we have another one where a bloke from Rio Tinto says he believes people don't trust mining companies. What? Come on. I thought, where did that come from? I mean, yeah, here we are. Rio Head says the public does not trust miners. A bit of a public relations. They just haven't done their advertising properly. It's probably similar to the banks thing, and I'm sure if they had a royal commission, they'd just find that they'd done nothing wrong and everyone was um, <laughs> mistaken mm. in their views. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's 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 hard to believe. But anyway, he says that. But I, I like the bit where he also says that they care about... He says people think we don't care about the environment, but in fact... Um, in fact, he says, I don't know how hard we actually work to minimise our impact. So there you are. <laughs> we don't know. Minimise. We really don't know. <laughs> yes, there's, there's a lot in the word minimise, isn't there? Yeah, minimise our terrible, terrible impact. Because it's the end of the year and we've had so many bad jokes, let's try and outdo them all. Oh, um, God. Here we go. Another headline here, um, IKEA Australia to open pop-ups smaller stores. And I thought... The, the terrible joke is, and it's true apparently, though, that, that not, not one franchisee yet, it's got up to a very bad start, not one franchisee yet has worked out how to put it together. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the pop-up stores aren't popping up. Um, the instructions for how to put together the pop-up are in Sweden. That's right. Well, a friend of mine actually thought he got a great bargain. He bought this wonderful state-of-the-art um, phone in uh, Thailand, but he got back and realised everything's in Thai, all the instructions. He's got no idea what's going on. But anyway, that's the question. <laughs> huh. Beauties of globalisation. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But I think he's slowly working it all out. Mm. He does ring me on it, so I presume so. <laughs> um, and this is an interesting story. It's been passed. It's, the word's been, you know, the people are saying and, and the Royal Commission's been saying that the the regulators have been treating the banks and the financial institutions with kid gloves, and they, you know, they, they instead of taking them to court, they they agree on some sort of penalty, which is an absolute mm. minimum compared to what they'd be pay, paying um, if they went to court and got fined. Mm. But it's turned out that, in fact, in a, in a lot of cases, they were um, they were actually just asked to donate some money to charity, uh, and this was a story in the uh, Saturday paper last week. Um, 
for instance, it talks about um, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission's decade of deals with the banks began in March 2009 when its then chairman, Tony Deloasio, struck an enforceable undertaking, that in um, called EU's agreement with the bank. But, uh, ANZ had been a player in the spectacular collapse of the financier Opes Prime, which went into receivership in March 08 with an estimated $1 billion of debt. Instead of dragging the bank into court at great cost, Delasio did a no-blame deal with ANZ bosses who agreed to complete a program to remedy deficiencies in operational procedures. Nice language. Yeah. During the past 10 years, the corporate regulator has ramped up these no-fault arrangements with the banks. Rather than prosecute them, ASIC agrees not to sue and the banks agree to an enforceable undertaking in which they recognise ASIC's, in parentheses, concerns about their behaviour and make a community benefit payment. Now, the community benefit payments are a, a fraction of what they'd pay if they were fined. But the other yeah. side of that is, as the story points out, that once they make those payments to charities, they then become tax deductible. So right. they're actually <laughs> claiming tax on the on what uh, they're paying as penalties. That's shocking. <laughs> that's terrible. And they, I don't know, but they do. Of, banks do often advertise that they've been giving to charity as well, as mm. if it's a kind of a a, sh- a show of their social conscience. So how do we know those payments aren't enforceable undertakings? Well, we don't know. EUs, EUs, get into the lingo, will you please? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, did we say, anyone say who we were at the start of the show? Don't we think we, we did. Why don't we introduce ourselves? <laughs> well, I'm Meg Kimber and you're listening to City Limits. Yeah. I'm Eugenia Zabchenko. You're right, and I'm Kevin Healy, and you're listening to... Uh, well, not don't listening. <laughs> if you're not listening, you don't know who we are anyway. So that's fine. Um, <laughs> tuned off by now. That's right. So there was a bit fools. of a waste of breath, really. Um, and you're, there's been full-page ads this week with those wonderful jets that finally arrived after years. And, of course, in the, when you have these contracts with the Americans for these jets... You, you say quite a, sign a contract for a price, but then as it goes on, the price keeps going up. And I would have thought a contract is a contract, but not when you're it's like, buying. It's like building a house in Melbourne. That's, what I thought. <laughs> that's right. Yes, okay. Yeah, that's it. Um, well, Australia's fifth generation Air Force has arrived, this ad says. Lockheed Martin, which happens to make these things and get billions yeah. of dollars for each one. So yeah. um, it's not exactly. That name's really familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Been in the news a lot lately. Yeah, it's sponsoring university courses and things. Yeah. Congratulates the Royal Australian Air Force on the arrival of the first F-35s on Australian soil. We are proud to continue our 80-year history of partnership. We'll bet they are at several billion a shot um, with Australia and welcome a new era for the sovereign defence of and national security for Australia's RAAF's F-35 fleet now has the world's most advanced, capable food. And it goes on about how they, they're great at killing people. And what? just just for people who can't see Kevin, this isn't an article. This is a full page full ad page they've ad. taken out full page in ad. Yep. one yep. of the papers. That's it. Financial Review, this one. Mm. I don't know what else it was in. So it goes on, Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours. Well, theirs is to get our money, and they've got it. Lockheed Martin, so that's it. But isn't that wonderful? And and the minister said how great they're going to be and all that. They mm. kill lots of people. I wonder what the kind of agenda was with taking out an ad. Oh, just to let us know that they were a wonderful company. <laughs> PR exercise, uh, you know, and yeah. people are supposed to believe that if you build something that kills people on behalf on your behalf, it, you must be a great company. Mm. It's, Maybe it's pushing just, back against the fact that a lot of university students are uh, objecting to the fact that the, they're funding, the, yeah, that the universities, yeah, yeah mm. a lot of defence companies are getting yeah. agreements with universities. And what what's the basis of those agreements? I don't, I don't know. Um, is it the students, like, and then advertise the students to join Not the specifically, courses. but, I mean, they're sponsoring courses and things, so one assumes the courses aren't going to say that we shouldn't go to war. I think it's just an expansion of 
the whole corporate funding yeah. model of universities mm. and somehow, I'm not sure, we could investigate and I mean, know they more. Also, <laughs> they also sponsored the recent celebrations of the 100th anniversary, the end of World War One, at the War Memorial. So, you know, mm, you've got yeah. a War Memorial and the companies that make the weapons that kill people are sponsoring the event. I mean, yeah. yeah, that's a bit... Pretty amazing, interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. This is an interesting story arising out of the fact that we do go to war. People living with the aftermath of Islamic State's occupation of Iraq will receive a record amount of Australian government aid worth $20 million over the next three years to help rebuild their lives. With $20 million over three years of our money isn't a lot, but nonetheless, mm. it's $20 million we would have to spend on here. And I don't object to helping these people, but $20 million we'd have here if we hadn't invaded Iraq all those years ago in 2003. Mm. Um, yeah, it's on top of the money that we actually spend right. going to war with them. Yeah. Totally destabilised the country and um, have led... And, and you know, it's, the, it's, it's unending. It's, it's going on as, as next door in Afghanistan where... It goes on and on, uh, thanks to our invasion. So um, isn't that wonderful? And on such things, our border force, um, you've probably seen the stories, they've been running for a week or two in the age, uh, bullying widespread in border force, 21% experienced discrimination at work, 22% subjected to harassment or bullying, 64% did not report harassment, etc. And it's going on about the problems. Border force, of course, are the mob who supposedly protect our borders Mm. and go out there and turn boats around, etc. Speaking of turning boats around, did you see the article in The Age that um, leaked an email from the internal organisation saying that they were going to decrease the amount of patrols that they're doing because they need to save money and they don't want to spend money on fuel? That's Uh, quite interesting, isn't it? Yes, yes, that's right. (laughs) But, but no one's coming anyway. They keep telling us they've turned the, they've stopped the boats yeah, coming. Exactly. It's wonderful. But yeah. if these are the sort of people in border force that there's widespread bullying, etc., 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 you can only imagine when they do find people at sea how they treat them. Um, people, yeah, exactly. People whom they're brainwashed to believe are illegals, etc., yeah. etc., et shouldn't be coming. Yeah. And we don't know. I mean, we've got no idea how many boats they're turning around. Mm-hmm. All, we're, all we're told is they're not getting into Australia, but... Mm. Um, well, what happens to the boats after well, they I turned s- around? I well, saw it. Exactly, um, exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I saw a, a poster someone had, had put up a, a paste up saying Sanction Australia. And um, mm-hmm. I was in the car with some friends and I said, oh, that's an interesting one, Sanction Australia. Because uh, someone who was in the car was like, what is a sanction? And I was like, oh, it's when you, you know, put restrictions on trade as a punishment for like a bad human rights record and I was like that's really appropriate mm. so mm. Yeah, there's like so many ways that Australia's not coming up to speed with the things that we've signed on for for the United Nations you yeah, know human totally. rights on the positive side there's real hope real hope here <laughs> uh, Labour Party conference this weekend <laughs> and um, there's a group in the Labour Party called Labour for Refugees I think they're called um, and they're um, going to move motions that in fact we we um, end offshore processing and anyone who gets here gets into the country and we bring the people on, on the, they're here etc well, you know a lot of the things we'd like to see happen um, and increase the number of refugees given humanitarian visas from 12 to 18,000 to 50,000 places uh, and it, it goes on about that but we, here's the good news this is the really good news senior minister Tony Burke said such proposals were put forward at each national conference <laughs> I'll throw mm. it away every national conference there are some delegates who push for this and every national there's been a determination to make sure that we don't adopt any policy that would start the drownings again oh. he told Sky News he told Rupert Murdoch's right wing lot um, mm. so there's, there's no hope is there just... Uh, 
both both the same. Shame. Shame. Well, you know, we've had reasonably good people go into Parliament with the Labor Party saying they're going to fight that, but they have no success, whatever. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Waste of yeah. their time. Waste of time being in Parliament. Uh, and just to finish up, um, we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks Scott Morrison's um, sojourns as uh, head of New Zealand and Australian tourism authorities and disappearing from both, getting, mm. the, getting the flick. But, it, but in Parliament, they've asked questions um, that these these contracts that went missing and on those contracts um, the um, they it said that they miss out on you know they they're, they're really dreadful contracts they uh, the audit focused on three major contracts worth a total of 184 billion but singled out the first two for particular criticism detailing non-adherence to procurement guidelines poor record, record keeping actioning an unsigned contract and withholding financial information from the board while the audit did not mention Morrison by name the contracts were executed under his stewardship as agency head uh, in parliament the Labor Party and presumably the Greens have asked questions and asked them to table these missing contracts that should be on this on this um, file where, mm-hmm. where they ought to be, but they're not. And Morrison's refusing on the grounds that they're confidential because they were covered the services they covered were delivered overseas. Well, yes, mm-hmm. you make all the you make the the product here, and it's mostly that. Um, where the bloody hell are you at that was mm. backfired, was that backfired big time. Um, wow. You make the whole thing here, and of course you send it overseas because that's, that's your market. <laughs> so you, because they're delivered overseas, he says they're confidential and he can't produce them. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I, would, I would be like, oh, it's the beginning of the end for the Federal Liberal Party, but it's not. It's like the middle of the end. Like it's so, it's so close to the end now. Yeah, it's, also the, right. it's also the beginning of the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. It's just that's what they've been doing it the whole time. And when the end of the end comes, we can expect um, refugees to stay exactly where they are. I know. Absolutely. Isn't that wonderful? Insane. Let's take a break. We'll get Helen Vandenberg on the line. Anyone on the line in the right place, I hope at the right time, is Helen Vandenberg, who's at home sitting there talking to us, or not yet, but she's about to. Uh, Helen, of course, a well-known community activist, particularly in the northwestern suburbs, numerous subjects over the years we've talked about. But Helen, this, at the end of the year, I suppose the biggest achievement this year was your long-term campaign to get the state government to take the waterways of the West seriously. Yeah, good morning, Eugenie and Kevin and Meg. Morning. Um, yeah, I... I think that is uh, a good achievement. It um, should kick in to start working pretty soon. Um, however, there's a lot of work to do, and I think it goes back to you know soft regulation, which you've been talking about on financial measures. Um, but basically, the la- this fragile um, environment that's Australia on the driest continent of the earth was a beautifully managed estate uh, where when water and land management supported each other. But since colonisation and the invasion, um, there's been an industrial approach to, well, we want this, so we'll get this much out of that, and you don't look at the consequences long-term or short-term of that. I mean, if you take it down all the trees and your rainfall reduces, you know, mm. you should be able to put the two facts together, but that hasn't occurred much, has it? Mm. Anyhow, we know... Um, so... I guess for me personally, the highlight has been our continuing relationship with the Wurundjeri's Narrab land management team, um, with whom we work closely on restoring the Lily Street escarpment. Now, um, 
that's a weed-infested, stark environment that we've put 8,500 trees into in the last four years. And in the 11 years before that, Friends of the Maribyrnong Valley have put a lot of trees and plants and shrubs and grasses in too. But um, we cannot restore the waterways to a healthy state unless we change the land management. So that's why we particularly um, emphasised in... The, the issues came up because we had... Um, the Helen McPherson Smith Trust gave Environmental Justice Australia a grant so that we could run... Uh, they could run for us a series of um, participatory design workshops and the issues that kept coming up were the mismanagement of water, too much of it being taken out. It's like a mini Maori Darling Basin mm. fiasco mm. In, in different well, sections. Just as an aside, there's a blue about to take place in Queensland because Adani want to take um, water out of a out of a river which is already suffering from drought and local people are having trouble and um, there's going to be another environmental fight there. Oh, look, it, it, it's always who's allowed to prioritise having the, the precious little water we have for their profit over against what is needed to keep the landscape healthy. And the only people who've ever understood that were the traditional owners. And yet this year South Australia had a royal commission into the Murray-Darling Basin fiasco and um, Bruce Lindsay, who um, works with us on the Rivers of the West, was uh, gave a presentation to that commission um, because he'd been working with the um, traditional owners and the, the lower Murray-Darling Basin mm. traditional owners there. So, um, And they're saying that um, under international agreements, the traditional owners' rights are not being um, met and they're being kept out of the decision-making process whereas if they were brought into it, we would be on our way to getting. Mm. And if we would just learn the lessons and their wisdom from them, we would get a long way to healing the country and yeah. our waterways. We mentioned last last week, and we said we'd refer to it this week with you, um, Melbourne Water Companies have recruited a First Nation manager to advise on Indigenous ways to better manage water. The four firms said it was vital to tap into the centuries of knowledge that First Nation peoples had in managing land and water. They were appointed a woman called uh, Tarori Hariko Samos, who has um, it's both First Nation and uh, Papuan background. And it said um, they've, they've been boosting cultural understanding between the water sector and Indigenous peoples through a program called Eight Ways of Knowing First Nation Cultural Knowledge Exchange Training. And it goes on to, to make... They go on to make the point... Um, over generations, First Nation peoples have managed land and water sustainably and this role will allow us to tap into their knowledge of uh, centuries of knowledge and experience. It's vital that as an industry we recognise the cultural, spiritual and economic connections First Nation people have to land, water and resources in their relationships to country, which sounds like a pretty pretty good good move. Well, the amount of knowledge we've built up from being with Wurundjeri Narap team for four years is... Um, amazing. But I mean, we look at fire as a threat and firestorms, well, they're pretty terrible. But anyhow, the point is, fire was used as a tool for keeping country healthy. Now, we had a cool burn on Spring Gully Reserve grassland. It's um, small grassland. Yoss found some endangered grasses over there. We persuaded council to set the area Just to, aside. Just to demonstrate, Yoss is your partner, your yes. husband, in fact. 
uh, of 50 years. That's right. And, um, you know, we have a I'm wonderful little um, <laughs> grassland over there. And, you know, if you don't burn the grasses, you get all these dead grasses from the tussock grass, the base of it gets surrounded by dead grass. Now, if you burn that off at the right time of the year in the correct weather, and for in, in this case you burn it into the wind because that keeps it cooler, um, at a certain time you will get rid of the biomass that you don't need and you will put carbon back in the soil and then your grasses will reshoot beautifully and that's what they're doing over there in the grassland when we were doing a little... Um, video of Uncle Dave on Saturday which will eventually go on our Facebook page but the point is they knew how to manage this land in this environment and now with climate change threatening (laughs) everybody in the most dramatic fashion because this will be rapid climate change whereas before it was a gradual climate change we in the West have very little amenity because We've had the pollution burden from industry. We've had the pollu- well, we had the pollution burden from agriculture. Then we've had an intensely industrialised usage around here, which then polluted your air and your waterways and your land. We've got uh, councils that believe you can have above-ground waste mountains as a responsible way to manage waste. When we're saying no, there are better ways of doing it than that. So we have a complex set of problems, all of these things come back to our lack of understanding about the natural environment and how it works. And in the middle of all this, you're packing in people into um, urban estates out in Wyndham and, you know, Diggers Rest and everywhere else. And you're packing them in very close together where there's not enough space to grow a tree to create the shade, which means your roads are not going to get properly shaded and you'll have to resheat them regularly, especially as you get into the 40-degree temperature. Mm. There's so many connection things, so many things connect here to the actual amenity that people enjoy and the health that they have. Because if you're in a polluted environment, you're not going to be as healthy as people who have clean air uh, and access to green spaces to recreate in. The only thing left in the west of Melbourne are these thin green ribbons of land alongside the waterways. And in, and in quite a few places, we have really steep escarpments left because nobody could build on them. Mm. And where the escarpment is gradual, they've allowed um, people to build on them. And, I mean, next year could be a series of battles in the Maribyrnong over over what's going on in the, in the developments along the Maribyrnong because people have got old planning permits that are based on wrong planning law and total disrespect for how you should keep out of the valley. Uh, it's, you should keep off steep escarpments. But anyhow, it's been a positive year that there's a ministerial advisory committee set up to hear the concerns of the people and look at how we redress it and how we reset the laws to give greater amenity and wellbeing greater protection to the biodiversity we have left. And the challenge will be, although we have minimal left, how do we even keep that minimum in the face of climate change? So that's how poor we are out west. Yeah, well, and, but just on that as well, that same story about the woman being appointed, uh, the government in May um, legislated that all water management must have regard for Aboriginal uses and values of waterways, and the Australian 
Curriculum Assessment Authority has just issued guidelines on how to incorporate Aboriginal history and culture into the teaching of science. So there's mm. a few positives going on. Oh, there are. We've, we've been pretty slow learners, but we're starting to pick it up. But how can... And then the load and the load of work that then is expected of traditional owners in terms of now everybody wants to know all of a sudden what we should have under- mm. been trying to understand. How do you then talk to a community that's been decimated mm. by uh, smallpox mm. and measles originally? I mean, don't forget, the Victorian population had two-thirds of the population wiped out within about 15 years of settlement. And by 1924, I think it was, there were 34 Wurundjeri people left, and from that they've been rebuilding. And the point is, at a national level, there's now a fire network, at least on the East Coast, and Uncle Dave Wandon is the Victorian coordinator of that. Now, how are they to get the money to establish that network and sustain it and how are they with the diminished population supposed to get all the teaching done and you know we need to start recognizing one that they have intellectual property we ought to be acknowledging that that it's their intellectual property we ought to be supporting them to the maximum so that they can do as much as is possible to educate us and we should pay for this information the same as we pay for it from anywhere now yeah right i mean they have an extraordinary generosity towards us all even though we've come in nearly exterminated them practiced genocide taken their land not paid any rent none of that's been compensated for they are still willing to say we will live with you and we are happy to teach you I mean, how much more generous can you get? Mm, totally. Yeah, that's really so, good point. So, I mean, I'm constantly amazed at their generosity and their peacefulness. Their, you know, it is, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Anyhow, because if it was any business that was, um, you know, contracted as an advisor to any of these companies to give this kind of information, there would be... You know, really, really, really big fees, well, and and the other thing is like what our what our taxes go to as well in mm. terms of, um, you know, if we had a choice on where it went to, uh, yes. instead of you know to subsidising fossil fuels, for example, or oh, you know subsidising people's investment properties, um, that that it could go to things like this instead. I just, Look, yeah. if we all paid one dollar a year on our rates, now this is not my idea; it's an idea that's come that I heard about from Uncle Dave. Mm. You heard about it from somebody else. If we all pay $1 a year on rates and that went toward, imagine the millions that you would set up, right? Mm. I, I, there's no way of restoring what was lost because the devastations have been too great. But we need... If we are to have any dignity ourselves, mm. it is the way we treat, the way we rebuild this relationship and treat them with the respect and their knowledge and wisdom with respect that's going to make us either, uh, um, you know, either a good or a poor nation. Mm. In terms yeah. Of, yeah. Mm. However, um, and Uncle Dave has been explaining cultural history to Bruce too, and, you know, there's a need for mapping in the West that's not complete. 
we need to have a look at how urban design can be changed and we need the federal government to understand that if we're really going to make the West a livable place into the future, we need, we're probably going to need some um, money from them to help us because there's a massive amount of stormwater rushing into all the drains that used to be waterways mm. and we need to slow that flow. So how are we going to slow it? Where are we going to slow it? Uh, how, For instance, how can we purple pipe suburbs so that people could water their gardens? The advantage of people getting back to being able to water their gardens is that you will get some infiltration into the soil and it will then become groundwater, right? Mm. Because on the west of Melbourne where we have much less rainfall and we are all groundwater dependent and at the moment the water is rushing off the landscape into the drain, there's very little infiltration occurring. Now, 54 mils of rain is not supposed to create, turn my little one metre wide creek into a 150 metre wide creek. But it did that recently, right? Twice this year it's done that. Mm. That's the width it gets to in a one in 200 year flood. A 54 mil rain event over 36 hours is not a one in 200 year event. Mm. And that's happening, mm. I imagine, because of the amount of concrete on the ground surface around the Yeah, and your suburbs. road surfaces mm. are not porous, and they could be. And your nature strips are. Yeah, uh, well, for instance, if you go and space. look at Keeler Road here in Mooney Valley in a light industrial area, they've concreted over the nature strip so they can park cars there. don't know oh, that any no. of it's legal. And then you've got um, bigger houses on smaller blocks. Now, if you want to, you tr any tree that has a 20-metre canopy needs that much flat surface for the rain to get through right mm. and you see developments go ahead and they'll put in a tree and they'll give it maybe a meter around the base mm. of it mm. that's not going to support the tree into the future i'm 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 surprised at how how dumb we are about <laughs> I mean it's oh, really <laughs> we have been extraordinarily dumb yeah. you know you can it, the trouble is when people draw things on paper they yeah. believe it yeah. they don't check it in reality yeah. right yeah. i mean the other thing that's happening is that this kind of knowledge um about water sensitive urban design has actually existed even in the kind of planning communities for a long yeah. time but it doesn't oh, seem to be it's getting not being implemented. implemented or integrated and I, know, I don't know why that is i feel like councils aren't up to speed or whoever sort of looks after the planning side of things uh, there's a lot of impositions upon people but there's not a lot of creative and innovative uh, allowing people to be responsive to their specific needs where they are. So this then there's this one-size-fits-all thing where we're going to do this or that, when in reality you have to be on the site and be responsive to the site and look at, like, which way the sun moves, where the what appropriate plants would be and all those kind of things. But there's so many things that could be done. Mm. Well, there's an enormous amount of knowledge out there that can be activated. Mm. I mean, we've got the Monash um, Cooperative Research Centre for water-sensitive urban design, uh, cities. Um, Chris Ch Chesterfield chairs that, and he's going to be the chair of our um, ministerial advisory committees. So mm. That's a good thing. But Helen, the point Helen, is, Helen, we're just about out of. Sorry to interrupt oh. you, but we're just about out of time. Oh, Kevin, go but, away! But one, but one of the one of <laughs> the uh, but, but it's, it's a discussion for next year when we get back again. But um, one of the problems we face, and they're talking population in Canberra today, but uh, Melbourne is spreading into that area, and those those 
grasslands at the western north of Melbourne, uh, and the impact on those of development must have an impact on what we're talking about as well, obviously. Oh, yeah, there's a grassland over at Sydenham Park, right, just um, at, at the top of the escarpment in an area where if you could stand there, if you could get access to the site, you could see the confluence of Jackson's and Deep Creek and where it becomes the Maribyrnong River. Now... I believe that there is a plan to turn that into a recreational park and we've got our grassland there. So there's an initial conflict to begin with. How's that going to be managed? So there you go. And, I mean, at the same time, down in Gippsland, they're running trials on Themata grasslands to see if we can use this as a crop in the future because it withstands so much dry. Remember, this Themata grassland grasses were right across the continent right, mm. once, and it's a highly nutritious flower that you get from it. And it's got so, its own ecology, which we're destroying, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the most endangered flora mm. um, population in Australia, and it's had very little respect. But um, anyhow, but if I may mention something that's going to happen tonight, yes, you can. everybody, you that, yeah. um, Environmental Justice Australia is running um, a workshop in our backyard. It's a conversation about how we share the burden of pollution and how Australian communities are fighting to clean up their land, air and water. So it's involving Lisa Garcia, a lawyer from um, uh, Earth Justice in the US, um, and she's led groundbreaking and high-impact litigation to protect communities from pollution, so that'll be interesting. Mm. But then they've got clean air and clean water and all sorts of acts over there that we don't have. Mm. And Chris Barfoot has, is from the Latrobe Valley where he worked in the Hazelwood Power Station and is now in the Community Power Hub, which develops um, renewable energy projects in the region. And the other speaker is Julie Edwards, who's the CEO of the Jesuit Social Services and a leader in the Ignatian Justice in Mining Network. So she's going to be looking, explaining her research that looks closely at the impact of environmental factors on community wellbeing. Well, we all know about community impacts mm. on health and waterways from bad planning mm. and decisions, but I think it's a really good um, forum tonight, so I'm looking forward to it. And when when and where is yeah. it? It's tonight from 6 till 7... 30, I think, and it's is it the drill hall in Ferry Street? Um, you tell, you told me it was the multicultural hub. Oh, yeah, I was wrong. I went and looked it up oh, again. Dear. It's the drill hall. I was going to go to the yeah. multicultural hub. Well, that's why I thought I'd better mention that it's at the drill hall in Ferry Street, Kevin. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which suburb is that in yeah. It's obviously a big market still, though. It's close to the yeah, market. Yeah, yeah. Terry, oh, Terry, Terry Street. Terry yeah. Street runs off Elizabeth Street. At Big Mark, at the top of at the top right. of Big Mark, where the McDonald's is on the corner is Terry Street, um, <laughs> North Melbourne. Public, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really specific. <laughs> so, the drill, I suppose once well, you get to Terry go Street, go on the EJA website and check the details. Yeah, right. And you, Helen, you also said you have put some videos up on your Facebook page. Which one is that? No, we haven't got it yet. We okay. only filmed it on Saturday. It's got to be edited yet. Um, no. But that was courtesy of Mooney Valley Council's grant, which enabled us to run a reintroducing where I. Helen, we do have to go. Poor old Paddy Moriarty's hanging on. Um, oh, I beg your so, pardon. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not on the line yet. We're about to get him. Um, but
But look, I thanks for I get off you. and leave it tomorrow. Thanks, for, you. thanks for your time, and, okay. um, and we'll talk to you next year, and thanks for all your work. Thank oh, you. it's been a pleasure. Thanks, to chat. Thank okay. you. Bye. Thanks, Helen Vandenberg there, who, as you can tell, doesn't mind a chat either. Uh, <laughs> okay, look, we'll get, we'll get the well, old yeah. Professor Moriarty on the line and talk to him about a few things as well. Okay, on the line, Paddy Moriarty out at uh, Monash, sitting at his desk. Uh, well, it's all happening around you out there at the moment, isn't it, Paddy? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's, there's, there's building. They bulldozed your office. Well, when I say bulldozed, yeah, that's... Taking it down here. Oh dear, he's sitting on the railway line or something. <laughs> um, well, anyway, Paddy's on to again round up the year for us with a number of issues, and I thought we might kick off with this lithium situation, Paddy, which is used in batteries. There's a couple of points here. Um, one is that we're 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 mining it mostly in Western Australia, but then it gets sent to China for processing, and ultimately from there it goes to other countries to be turned into batteries, etc. Is there a waste of energy in there somewhere? Well, it's not quite. Apparently, there, there's talk of a uh, refinery uh, in Western Australia to produce um, lithium um, or lithium carbonate. Um, this is from a, uh, a news item on the 4th of May uh, 2018, so it may not have been built yet. So that's, if they're going to China, it's probably only a temporary uh, uh, solution. And there's seven or eight uh, lithium mines in in Western Australia. Um, I guess with lithium, one of the things that it has exercised people is how much, what are the reserves worldwide? In other words, if there's a, a number of groups like the International Energy Agency and so on are seeing an enormous increase in electric vehicles um, by 2040, I think Bloomberg uh, Energy, that's you know the private um, company, they're talking 600, 900 million electric vehicles by then, right? So if that happens, um, then whether there's enough lithium around um, is certainly uh, something that needs to be considered. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other ways of making batteries, of course. Well, there's the old lead-acid battery, which has been around for hundreds of years, but um, that's a bit heavy. And um, although they're cheap, uh, but what you end up doing mainly in the end is carting, using energy to cart round batteries to produce energy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the lead-acid batteries are the ones that are in conventional fuel yeah, cars yeah. and the electric cars now use lithium-ion batteries. Is that right? Yeah, because lithium is the, is the lightest um, metal. Mm. Mm. At, at the end of the battery's life, though, can it be recycled again, or is, it, is, that, is that it? I guess it could be. Um, yes, I don't think there's any additives that would worry it. Uh, that's generally the problem with recycling, is um, you know additives that are, that, that are put in which um, can make recycling very difficult. No, I think it could be recycled. The trouble is if you have a very rapid growth in electric vehicles and recycling isn't going to provide you much mm. of the lithium you, you need, right? Whereas with um, gold, I mean, we, t- we do tend to throw to recycle gold, right? Don't throw out much. So, <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the gold that's... Uh, well, of course, a lot of it doesn't get gets um, kept in its original form. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, Recycling will only be of main use when when the number of, of electric vehicles or uses for lithium stabilises a bit. Mm. Mm. And lithium um, batteries are also in all of our phones and yeah. and lots of other devices, right? So, do you know what is the sort of um, what's the main use? Like, you know, the lithium batteries that are in the phones, and then people are throwing away phones or whatever or maybe recycling them 
Um, you know, is that a major use or is the car well, the main there are, use? There are, I think, something like 7 billion um, mobile phones uh, in the world. Um, whether they're all working or not, I don't know, but it's roughly mm. equal the number of people in the world. Yeah. There's only 3 million um, electric cars, I think, at present, but it's increasing very or is it six? If it's increasing very fast, and I say, um, mm. given that the battery packs are so much larger, orders of magnitude larger than in a, uh, mm-hmm. a mobile phone, mm. uh, if it's not already, pretty soon, uh, uh, vehicles will will be the main use of lithium. So mm. which part of the battery is lithium? Is it the casing or is it the internal? No, it's the <laughs> internal part, if you like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So, so would, it, would it be safe to say, Patty, that there's a huge demand for lithium and maybe not enough supply to meet the demand? Well, that's not the case at present, but uh, okay. a number of articles that I've read do, uh, do suggest that we could have problems with lithium supply if this um, move to electric vehicles uh, continues as, uh, as planned. It's certainly growing very fast at present. Um, and you may know that uh, in some... In fact, an increasing number of countries in the world have made, um, well, verbal commitments um, to phase out internal combustion engine cars by variously about 2030, 2040. And if that happens, then, of course, the only vehicles that would be um, available would be electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. The batteries in South Australia and the ones people are buying for home use to store renewable energy, uh, what are they using? Are they using lithium as well? Well, I know that the one that... uh, uh, that Musk put in, Ellen Musk put in, with, with lithium, yeah. Um, the others for home use, I'm not sure what they use there. Uh, and you see, the, the thing is with um, stationary batteries, of course, a weight is not the problem as mm-hmm. it is in in a vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. And so obviously um, uh, cars that don't have combustion engines are better for the environment on you know, notionally. Emissions. Yeah, emi- yeah. Better, better for emissions. Air pollution emissions. And um, even in OECD countries, which are largely um, um, hydrocarbons and, um, uh, well, and uh, sulphur dioxide and so on, and these have been um, uh, reduced greatly. But in, in a, N2O is still, um, or various oxides of nitrogen are still a big problem. Mm. In fact, I think in London or the UK, they um, used up their the World Health Organization into uh, our allowance in the first five days of <laughs> this year or something, right? So it's still a problem. Mm. And, that's, uh, and that's why they want to go to um, electric vehicles. Yeah. There is a problem, however. Electric vehicles, because of the batteries, are heavier than ordinary vehicles. Yeah. Now, air pollution comes from two sources. One, of course, is the exhaust emissions. The other comes from um, the tyres, the road tyres, and also a bit of the road itself. Heavier vehicles produce more uh, rubber particles, fine rubber particles, than do lighter vehicles. So electric vehicles would actually produce more um, road um, PM, yeah. PM 2.5 particles than would conventional vehicles. I never knew that that was a source of emissions. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So there's two types of emissions. Uh, and they're, two types and of they're very dangerous emissions, of course. The, well, well, these are PM 2.5, yeah, in other words, yeah. less than 2.5 micron. Which yeah. get into the lungs. And, and yeah. what about the production of the lithium batteries themselves? Are there some sort of um, environmental concerns in that process of extraction and making Probably. the batteries? Probably. <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't checked mm. that, but they're usually... <laughs> so what, what about the end life, though? I mean, it's, it's, we know, you know batteries are being used because they're, they're, they're better for the environment, but when they've finished their life, are there problems then in terms of the environment of what you've got left with? Um, I'm not sure if they... Uh, uh, 
Well, if you, if you follow, say, in Germany, I think, with, let's say, with vehicles, you actually have to pay 200 or 200, I don't know what it is now, dollars uh, on your vehicle, and you get that back when it's properly disposed of. That's the mm. overall vehicle, right? It wouldn't be too hard to do this with batteries as well, to put some sort of um, price on them to prevent them being left on the nature strip, which is what you often see with lead-acid batteries. Yeah, mm. and to encourage that recycling that we were maybe talking about before. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, uh, and speaking of getting around in cars, etc., Patrick, um, our state government, um, we mentioned this last week, ever since the state election, every time we see the state treasurer in a photograph, he's looking over a freeway somewhere and saying how wonderful <laughs> it is. Um, and indeed, one of the big investors in infrastructure said recently that roads are the big go in infrastructure. They're the thing we really have to get into. Um, so when roads become one of the most profitable things, um, it's a worry, isn't it? Yeah, I guess um, a lot of this is um, done for, for freight transport. Um, if you have a look at, as I, I mentioned before, um, about the move to ban, this is only uh, cars rather than trucks, but to ban internal combustion engine, vehicle, in, in engine vehicles. An article in New Scientist was very interesting recently. The editorial said, are cars the new nicotine or, or the new tobacco? 30 or, 40, 30 or 40 years ago, it would have been unthinkable to talk about banning um, tobacco in public places. Now it's done, right? And it's accepted. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, in, in, especially in Europe, um, several countries are introducing quite wide um, car-free precincts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is... Well, the trouble is with, with our form of um, transport we've adopted. I've actually checked the uh, figures from 1900 and um, say 2016, a recent year. What I found was that the increase in transport, in say um, passenger transport energy between 1900 and 2016 was about 14 times the increase in energy consumption overall. In other words, transport was a fairly minor part of total energy in, in 1900, mainly for trains, um, steam mm, trains, mm. but it has increased enormously to about 23, 25%. Mm. And so out of proportion words, with population growth, I imagine. Yeah, well, well yeah. both have increased in, uh, along with popul- both um, you know, total energy use and transport use, but I'm just saying that transport and transport energy appear to have increased about 15 times faster than, mm. than, um, than energy o- overall, which means it puts transport in a pretty vulnerable, vulnerable position. It's got a number of... Well, I mentioned before about uh, road and parking use can take up most of the inner area. Um, it's also got mentioned air pollution, uh, greenhouse gas. There's about 1.2, 1.3 million people killed each year on the roads and probably 30 or 40 million injured, depending upon how you know, serious you, you take the injuries. Mm. Um, and there's... Uh, what else? It's also, of course, a cost issue that it's not available for, um, you know, very young people and so on. So mm-hmm. there's a number of, and also, of course, the exercise thing, which is um, which is exercising a lot of people today about um, people sitting in cars and not getting the exercise they need. So there's a number of there's a, a, a number of problems facing cars, and I think I think we will see uh, some change in attitude towards cars. It's interesting to note that. Uh, license holding among young males is actually declining uh, in a number of countries. I think in That's New South so Wales it is. Mm. That's very significant.
That's promising. That's very interesting, Patty. And the other thing that it makes me think of in terms of the similarity between the car companies or uh, and um, f- fossil fuels, I guess, in general, and smoking is that both industries knew about the dangers of their industries and have worked really, really hard to cover it up. From what I understand, the fossil fuel industry or the car industry knew about the effects of their industry on climate change before it became public knowledge. Well, yes. I mean, um, yes, it wasn't really uh, covered up in that sense. I mean, um, we've been talking and writing papers about climate change since at least, um, well, the late 80s. Yeah, uh, I've, I've but, heard somewhere that they knew like in the 10 60s. to 20 years before yeah, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, look, <laughs> look, when it comes to climate change, uh, Savante Aranius, the uh, Swedish chemist, um, pointed out in 1900, that uh, if you um, that a doubling of carbon dioxide would increase to the global temperature about four degrees C, which is roughly what we what present a um, little bit greater than present estimates do. Uh, Fourier, the French mathematician, wondered why the um, I think in about year eighteen hundred sort of uh, started thinking about global warming and so on. Um, my, my point is that I think that there's been an, a concerted effort to cover up that information and to try to make it look like these industries are better than they yeah, are. Yeah, I think what, what they're doing, um, like BP and so on, while they've been saying how green they are and so on, they've been funding the um, anti-climate uh, change groups, yep. right? Yep. That's certainly been happening. In other words, the public face and their um, mm. private face are, uh, are different. Mm. Yeah. It's hard to believe that, Patty, isn't it, really, yeah. these, these great companies? <laughs> well, well, this year we're going to have, uh, you know, the emissions from industry and, and um, fossil fuels is going to be greater than, than ever before, right? So we've done a lot of um, talking and writing over the past 30 years, but in fact... Um, we also, <laughs> in fact, the percentage of, of energy that's generated by non-fossil fuels is about the same as it was 10, 15 years ago. Nothing's much changed, you know. Partly because there's been a bit of an increase in neural energy, but nuclear, of course, has fallen a bit. And of course, this week, um, US, which won't which it won't sign the Paris Agreement, mm. but it, uh, it has vetoed other countries uh, from accepting and welcoming a report that says we're all doomed unless we do do something. Yes, apparently that, uh, that 2018 um, IPCC report uh, is a new scientist had an interesting article on that. Um, apparently <laughs> it was actually much tougher than the published one, right? But then, of mm. course, it has to go through the political process and they've got to, places like Saudi Arabia and America have to agree to the wording, right? So it got toned down a bit. If it, sound, if it sounds pretty serious. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What was it like before? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, laughing and, on the way to the doom, <laughs> Patty. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 you have to laugh, yeah. <laughs> um, so what's coming for you in 2019, Patty, in terms of your research and Well, work I'm at actually North? getting a bit of money for researching hydrogen, of all things, Ooh, if so. you want to talk to me about that. Yeah. yeah, we've talked on that a few times, but you've always been a bit sceptical, so I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll still be sceptical. It won't change that. <laughs> um, no, as I say, if in fact... I, I think, well, if you have a carbon tax, and I think that's... Well, the first thing that's got to happen is... You You've have only to have, got a minute to go, by the way, so yeah, yeah. OK, you have to have global caps on, on carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. And if you have global caps, then probably the way you'll do it is a carbon tax. If you have a carbon tax, it means that prices of fossil fuels go, go up. And I think that it has to go up enough to reduce 
carbon emissions. So I think that that will mean that mm. um, that transport, that's what I was saying, tying back to what I was saying before, I think transport will, will reduce. And I think the problem of which fuel to use, use will be less of a problem than it is worrying us today. Yeah. Right. Mm. But we need to redesign our city so that you can survive without a car. Mm. Yeah, yeah. A, a redesign our cities for humans rather than cars. Yes, and, indeed. And, and provide, yeah. provide yeah. viable public transport, for yeah. God's sake. Okay, Patty, look, that's that it. Note. But it's a, that's a, almost a positive note to end up on, which is a bit sad. But um, <laughs> but thanks for your time at various times this year, and we'll talk to you again next year and yeah. catch up on the hydrogen bit. But thanks okay, a lot. Guys. Okay, bye. Thanks, Patty. Okay, old Professor Moriarty there, and he's. Uh, <laughs> Batting on again next year. Yeah, it'll be exciting to talk to him and see how his research goes. All right, team, that's it. Next week we're going to do housing and that's it for the year.